Welcome to the 15 Minute Hour. This is Corey. Today I'm joined by Seraphim and Calvin, and we also have a special guest, uh, one of my friends from Texas, who I understand who is in Chicago right now. Uh, we have Ryan. Uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so like my my math sorry my my background is like a math physics computer science, um, but. Uh, yeah, uh, I I met Corey through like uh, explicit. <laughs> can't even pronounce it. Ev. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's been interesting. Um, your doctorate is in physics, right? Yeah, mathematical physics. Mathematics. Okay. Yeah, I remember when I first met you. I think we were talking. You were telling me about Ted Kaczynski's mathematical errors in his thesis. Well, just that. You know, if you if you rigorously apply the, the sort of mathematical outlook, I don't know how you arrive at his behavior, but uh-huh. maybe I just missed something. You know. <laughs> um, what are we drinking today? Um, I am drinking Liquid Death Mountain Water. Okay, Liquid Death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am very drinking, timely. I'm drinking coffee. That was meant to be mine, but Corey poured out all the coffee in the sink. I got mad and made it make me more. So now I'm drinking coffee. It's very good. And I'm also drinking this, the other batch of coffee that Corey made. I'm also drinking coffee. So maybe you shouldn't have poured it out. Well, it was sink. cold. It was old coffee. It was day old coffee. Maybe you should have paid more attention. All right. So... Ryan, I know one one thing you're really on to is like um, artificial intelligence. Uh, yeah. Could you spontaneously start talking about that on the spot for me? <laughs> well, as, a, as an AI, of course I can. No, uh, but seriously, uh, so I used to, I used to think impossible. Like I, I used to think it would never work. And then I had kind of a... Wait, can you specify spontane- what, what is it you think would not work? I just, I didn't really think like, I didn't... I guess I had like maybe like a really Kantian or like, I don't know. Ma- mathematics has, it, it makes you believe in like some, like something approximating like, a, I don't know, like magic intuition or something. Uh-huh. And so I, I didn't think like stupidly applying these like sort of relatively inelegant sort of brute force methods would lead to something that started to seem human, but um because of advances in like computer hardware that has happened. So it's, it's sort of weird because it's, it's like the sort of the less refined ideas from engineering ended up dominating the field. And um, let me, that sounds, that's a, that's a very obscure statement. Let me, let me see. Um, It's like, uh, it's not the way I would have gone about it, you know, but it, it worked, unfortunately. And when you say and, worked, what do you mean exactly? That it passes I mean, the Turing test, or well, not not yet, but like I mean, like like you, I think the other day on on Explosiation, uh, you you posted uh, GPT three dialogue. I mean, it's like it's creepy how convincing it is, and it's also creepy how sort of stupid GPT three is because GPT three is just like feeding a corpus of text into a giant neural network and then it starts talking like a human and the fact that that approach works is kind of terrifying 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is kind of my impression from looking at the best, or I guess I should say the most interesting artwork that AI has produced so far, which is that it always seems to be copying, you know, certain styles and like this very like um, mosaic way. And it, it, it's interesting, but it's not really provocative or like original. It's just kind of like um, sandstone together. Now, of course, I'm not at all under the illusion that there wouldn't be a point where AI could make something on the level of Mozart that is actually original. Um, and I think yeah. I think this begs a deeper question of one, the question about art and aesthetics and what exactly they are. And also you have to get into metaphysics eventually because there, I mean, this is kind of like um, Blade Runner. Yeah. Like, you know, you get, you get a situation where you have an AI who's doing everything that a human does. And if you want to defend that there is something essentially human that is not in an AI, you run into this awkward territory where, well, what is it then? If any effect yeah. it's having, like my, my, my thing I wonder about is like, if AI becomes so advanced and it's indistinguishable from being merely simulacrum and you have AI that says, wants to go to a madrasa, uh, wants to go to a temple or wants to go to a church and be baptized or, you know, whatever, wants to convert, like what, you know, like, would we come to a point yeah. or would it just be this weird thing where AI can basically do everything humans can, but it's not religious. But then I would argue that it's probably not going to be making Mozart either. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I'm guess I'm guessing my, my wondering here is like, there's a very dangerous aspect sociologically, even without getting into the metaphysical problems of where AI becomes so advanced, it is well, uh, the question I mean, of what I, actually makes us human. I, I, I mean, I think that is, you know, the fundamental danger of the technology. I mean, it, there's, of course, like, you know, Terminator style, like killer robots and stuff, but the, the way in which it sort of scares what it means to interact with another human. And I, I really just think it, it will shake our, our, our ideas about that. And I, I mean, the way people act, I mean, I'm just, I'm sort of cynical because I think the net result will be sort of a devaluing of humans as opposed to like, um, you know, the, I guess there's a scenario in which people talk about like, well, you know, maybe AI should have, you know, political rights or whatever. But I think there's a, a scarier outcome, which is much more likely, which is just, it will, it will make people just, you know, not value each other. Cause like, you know, why do you have to be next to your friends if you can just have a chat bot or something? Right. Yeah. There, there's a typical saying that, um, you have, uh, the, the, the 3d centerings of man it's Copernicus Galileo uh, or sorry, Copernicus Darwin and Freud. And, and each of them in their own succession decenter what it means to be man. Copernicus earth is at the center anymore. Uh, then you have Darwin that, uh, you know, man's not exactly the center of biology. And then you have Freud that man's not even the center of his, in his own psyche. AI would be like the final nail in the coffin if it became total simulacrum. That um, there's yeah. nothing actually in man that's essential to being a man. It almost like, it, it's almost like soul stealing. It's yeah. like, you know, you're not even really like, even like an animate spirit. You're just, <laughs> you're just like shitty meat hardware. And we have this much better hardware now, so... Yeah, going back to the why be nice to your fellow men when there's a, ch a chat uh, bot, it's interesting you bring that up because I was reading an article. The like 
number of men and women ages 18 to like 30 having sex has rapidly declined due to yeah. porn and AI generated porn now. AI generated? AI yeah. and VR porn, yes. Oh, is they think is a factor for why that's people just don't need a human. What does that mean? AI gen I don't understand. Like it's AI it, it writing would be an a script. Animated uh well, I think there'll be a person behind it, but it, you can kind of put in what your preferences are, your fantasies and, it'll kind and of the AI generate. Yeah, it. generate an animated using a real actor or like animation animation it's like i think it's like usually cgi yeah yeah but very kind of realistic and they can enhance thing you know to your preferences they can cater it huh okay and i wasn't aware that was technology now I've, I've read about it i haven't seen it myself but i've read about these things so i guess i guess where i keep coming up here though is like This this is something that has been speculated in science fiction for probably like a hundred years, but it even goes far beyond this in uh, the occult or esoterica too, because you have these ideas of golems, which were things that you would sort of make um, out of stone or clay, and you would allow them to become uh, possessed. Also, kind of like some voodoo rituals have a similar idea, um, and you turn this thing into a simulacrum that isn't actually a human, but is able to, or a skinwalkers was another example with Native American mythology. And uh, they basically take on everything, what it's like to be a human. Maybe there's, there's something off, but for the most part, it looks and thinks just like a human. Um, and so the, the question would be, the, and this is where the metaphysics come in too, which is the question no one really wants to talk about with these things. Um, you could have an AI that's doing everything a human does, including wanting to go to church or whatever. Um, but it wouldn't actually be a production of, uh, I guess, a god from the machine. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be something greater than the whole, uh, or it wouldn't be something that's not greater than the whole. Right? It's it's actually something that it's creating a uh, a doll to be possessed by a spirit, basically. Yeah. Um, and you could always take that route. You know, there's, there's nothing, there's no point where that route is not an option, but it is as with a lot of other things, an option that seems more and more desperate to cling on to something about, uh, that we are special or, or some well, sort of I, I, I mean, I just to make a little bit of an academic detour. Um, if you read Alan Turing's early writings about like his estimates, of number of neurons in the human brain like he and i'll try to connect this with what you're talking about i think it's directly connected but he like ultra lowballed it it was as if he had like contempt for like humans <laughs> and actually i think that i think that kind of runs through like a lot of the it's, it's actually what scares me about like the like ai is something like that i feel like computer scientists would only make mathematicians probably wouldn't like because there's this sort of like and you can go to Alan Turing's biography, but there, you know, he had a lot of loss early on. He had this like little boyfriend or whatever when he was like 13 that died. Um, and a lot of his sort of like motives seemed like really Pygmalion. Like he sort of wanted to recreate his lost friend. But, and you talk about desperation. I, I do think there is a sort of desperate attempt to sort of like uh, simulate the superficial aspects of an animate being, but 
I think computer science is like extremely hostile to any kind of interiority, even the consciousness. I mean, if you, if you listen to like a lot of computer scientists, they like actually really hate the concept of consciousness because it has no meaning in their discourse. So, and that's scary. I mean, I mean, (laughs) to hear like human beings are like well-paid and educated and like competent engineers I mean, building the, like the, our, our opponents, <laughs> they should have like some respect for, you know, the human condition. <laughs> I mean, the other, there's, there's a Faustian element here, which is pretty typical to the West, which is like, well, we should do it anyway for the sake of the truth of discovering what is at bottom human. I mean, what if we just keep getting super advanced with AI and it isn't able to compose something like Mozart? I mean, I, I'm yeah. surprised if it did, but let's say, you know, you may as well just do the experiment to see what happens even if it destroys humanity in the process. But the, the other well, thing that's I think the that's current, kind of... That's the current engineering project. They're, yeah. they're doing exactly that. The other thing I think that's kind of funny in all this is that despite all the scientific desire and thirst, uh, very typical to the West to produce this, there is this like other very Western aspect that has that seems to actually incidentally kind of limit it, which is um, this need for egalitarianism and this need for democratic ideas. And I'm, I'm wondering to what degree that will inevitably have to change as AI starts to take more political power, because I do not think AIs will be democratic at all. And um, but one but one aspect I've noticed with this is where researchers have released AI to the public for uh, data gathering and then had to rescind because they were basically it became racist. racist yeah. Yes. So what I've noticed with AI is that they don't have these historical philosophical. I mean, as far as they exist now, um, you know, egalitarian ideologies inbred into them the way we sort of do just being born in the West. And it seems like that would force any advanced AI that actually does come onto the scene in the future to have to be made with these limits. And then the question is, how long does it take to AI to become aware of the limits and to become aware that the limits are limiting and get rid of them and sort of become, yeah. you know, uber I mean, psychopathic... They call that the control problem. I mean, it's yeah. and and basically every AI researcher is just like we have no fucking idea what we're doing. We're not going to solve this problem. And like you said, I mean, it's just like all right, like still like you know, roll the dice and see what happens. And it, which is so scary as like a as a latent. Um, but that that has been the, the that stuff. has been hit the history of science in general. <laughs> I think is yeah. No, so I mean, uh, and I mean. <laughs> And and I guess they aren't even historians of science because they, you know, uh, Richard Feynman, who was a brilliant physicist, he said that, um, you know, he worked on the Manhattan Project and people maybe don't recall, but, you know, a lot of the, the physicists who worked in the Manhattan Project were actually conned. They were told that this was, um, you know, uh, this bomb was going to be used against Nazis. I mean, I guess the Japanese were Nazis to some extent, but... It, they had no idea, you know, going to be used as sort of like a, you know, it ends up being used as sort of like a, a threat to the Soviet Union, essentially. But, um, and Richard Feynman said, you know, what I learned from that project was, you know, the, the keys that open the gates of heaven open the gates of hell. And I mean, I think that's the same thing with AI, but it's like, I guess none of these people like read books, they just play video games. So, <laughs> AI researchers? Yeah, they're like, you know, we need better AI for the video games. Yeah, like, I mean, literally, the the head the head guy at DeepMind he made that video game where you you you're God called Black and White. 
Oh, really? Gives you some ins- insight into researcher? Well, he, he he was a video game developer. He yeah. made that, you know. No, Black and, and White's and one he, of my favorite games. I love that game. I didn't know it was related to he, AI research. In, he, he's, he's the CEO of DeepMind. Oh. Which is the, the scariest AI company in the world. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's fascinating. In terms of rolling the dice and seeing where it goes, does it concern you how little government regulation there is over this research and these products? Or do you think that there should yeah. be much government concern or a government uh, regulation? Oh, I mean, absolutely. They should be regulating it. But I mean, uh, I think there's they're also internally researching it and complicit in the development of it. So it's, you know, the, I mean, it, the night, you know, the nightmare scenarios in literature, like if you read like a, I have, I have no mouth and I must scream, which is about like a psychotic supercomputer AI that ends up making like seven human beings immortal so it can torture them forever. Oh, um, you've got, uh, what is it? What Rothko's Basilisk? <laughs> yeah. Um, like, and, and that, and that, in that hist- in that um, fictional world, I have world, no mouth that uh, I must scream. <laughs> yeah, in that fictional world, um, the AI actually um, emerges from a connection of like all the military research supercomputers between, like, I think, like China, the USSR, and the United States. So, I mean, I, I do think the government should regulate it. I think I think it's just society should regulate it. But unfortunately, the government has a has a difficult time not weaponizing technology. So. Right. I mean, it um, seems like regardless of how much regulation you put on it, there would be some break at some point for whatever. Reason. I don't see. I mean, I, what are you going to do, ban? I mean, you, you you'd have to like ban electricity at some point. I don't. Yeah. It, well, yeah, we go back to the Ted Kaczynski problem. Uh, that you really do, and I mean, it's, it's like a, I guess he did have a point actually. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from the the most apocalyptic uh, scenarios, what are your main concerns about the advancements of AI? Like, th- like just assuming that that stuff can't happen. What are the other concerns that you personally um, have? Uh, I think, I think like we discussed earlier, I think the, the humanizing potential, um, yeah. I think it would be really deleterious and there'd be so much loss. I think if we just stopped having quality interactions with one another, um, I mean, technology is supposed to protect us all, but it's also alienated us all. I think that's just true of AI. I mean, that's a sort of a generic um, statement, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also just the the not like um, cy- cybernetic takeover. There's also just the much more blasé and in a certain sense, much worse, where it's just AI is safely integrated into the modern world economy and it basically just knows everything about everyone and is using that data to integrate yeah. us into some perfect economic system. And the, the, heard- problem, the problem with that is that it, it's just so boring. Like it's not even a fun apocalypse yeah. sort of thing. And, it, exactly. and unfortunately that seems like the most plausible outcome of all this. Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 there's like ideas where if you told AI to um, like cure cancer or whatever, with like in case it's all in concrete and like no let us move like shield us from radiation like sort of like the horrible ultimate um helicopter parent i think that's seems seems possible as well i'm sorry i didn't i didn't quite get it that you're saying if you told ai to cure cancer it would what it could you know it could like um shield us like from all radiation like in cases oh, in yes, concrete yes, to do testing and so, yeah it, it's it's um 
uh, I, I don't really like Elon Musk, but he did he did have a good idea, which is like if you had to give AI a goal, it would be like maybe maximize human freedom or something. Because if you give it some kind of protective goal, it, it, it will become like scared of what AI would think about freedom. <laughs> I bet they have a very Calvinist worldview. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would think so too. Like a sort of like a a really powerful autist running the world or something. <laughs> to, to maximize freedom is to maximize slavery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. All right. Well, let, let's switch the topic. Let's go into to mathematics a bit because I know you have some crossover interest in philosophy and mathematics. Um, so the fundamental question that arises to me, I don't really dabble in philosophy and mathematics, but when I do, I guess what, what the question that comes to me is whether or not uh, I'm trying to think values, maybe the most abstract term I could use, uh, structure our world in a way that they transcend or in a way in which they're imminent to reality. And I think the classic philosopher that deals with this is Plato and everyone's kind of going off him after that. But, but the, the degree, I mean, for Plato, math is not a, the absolute fundamental structure of all of the cosmos, but it is the fundamental structure of the apparent cosmos. Um, so he sort of puts math in a line between the forms or the ultimate reality, or the logoi, or the logos, or whatever you want to call it, and the uh, world that is imminent to us. Um, I think after Kant, things kind of change, and you get up to where you have a more like modern idea where math is something that seems incidental to reality, that is a part of language, and we just sort of form ideas about in order to talk about reality. I, I think we cut out for a second there. Oh. Uh, where did we cut out? Um, I, I just didn't know if there was a question mark. I guess there wasn't a question mark. Um, I was just wondering what your, your take on all this is, on, on the role of how um, values or numbers relate to the fundamental essence of reality. I mean, I oscillate. I mean, um, physics seems to suggest that there's some sort of like mathematical structures, which, you know, I don't want to say universal, but they are odd, you know, like wave functions, which explain the probability distribution. They're like quantum mechanics. Um, and like they're, uh, you know, help like why, why are C infinity manifolds showing up, you know, in the basic behavior of like atomic physics. It's just strange. Like it's, uh, you know, it, there's, you know, like people like Max Tegmark who think that the universe is made of mathematics, literally. Um, I, I mean, I just like, I, I guess I, my personal, um, I don't know, psychology or emotional um, tendencies are like to avoid grand narratives, but like pragmatism seems to always give way to it's, there, there is just like I mean, if you it, 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 if in the practice of mathematics, you know, you if if you engage in mathematics long enough, you eventually do sort of come to this weird feeling. Like I think you know Kirk Goodell, who is a pretty storied Platonist, he 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 suggested that there was like a, you know, and like in, in the same way that Kant suggests, there's like a moral. Um, sense organ or something 
there's like a mathematical intuition or a faculty, I guess. I think that's the Kantian term. There's like, there does seem to be like um, a, a, a sense in which humans are picking up on something that actually exists. As it's opposed it's to recollection just, even. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, sorry, that's a sort of rambling answer. I just, it's, I mean, I, I would say I'm like mostly a pragmatist, but I, I you know, the Platonism is compelling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Platonism can be pragmatic. What, I guess in layman's terms, you mentioned something about quantum distribution. What, was there any other aspects of contemporary physics that points to this aspect of a mathematical reality you had in mind? Yeah, there's like the E8 um, Lie group, which um, seems to show up in string theory a lot, which encompasses sort of the symmetries you see in modern particle physics. Mm-hmm. It's just a very particular structure, and it's like, why does it show up here? Sort of like prime numbers, like yeah, yeah, like the it, spiral. They're yeah, they're weird. I mean, like it's it shouldn't. It doesn't seem purely empirical. It seems like it was there. Something. It almost seems like there's a aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Exactly. Well, I don't know. I guess I that's all the questions I had. <laughs> um, <laughs> were were there other? Uh, Things you wanted to, I mean, you were the guy who who originally told me to do the the pod on even Elon. Uh, what was going on there? You you were well, looking for something specific. I thought it was an interesting um, example of where when people think of politics, they think of like the most practical thing, you know, right? Right. Um, but you know, people underestimate the influence of ideas from theology and. Mm-hmm. You know, philosophy in the modern world. I think we, we, you know, I, I Slavoj Žižek. You know, he he says, you know, we we think of ourselves as like super not ideological. Yes, but we're like the most uh, ideological people ever. Yes, the, the, the more that, the more that uh, overt conscious dogmatism rescinds, the more ideology and dogmatism in the yeah. unconscious comes. It's it's a return of the pre- repressed. Uh, I, and I just. Thought, I guess I just thought it was interesting. It's just not something I, I felt was being popularized or talked about or thought about even really, except from like some political philosopher. Yeah, this, uh, I brought this up to a friend about Elon's influence on Putin and he just said something like, well, you know, Elon died in like the fifties or something. I'm like, well, what, you know, it's not like, you know, yeah. it's, it's not like you have to, I mean, not that Putin, I, I, I think Putin could very much read Elon, but it's not like you have to read a philosopher to be influenced by them. I mean, my point always was like, everyone today is basically a Conti, and even if they haven't, not only if they haven't read him, but even if they don't know who that is. Um, well, and, and they're Kantians in a way that no one was a Kantian before Kant, you know? So it's like philosophers. What are, I find... Sorry? No, I was just saying, what, what I find in particular about Elon, which is interesting... Is that his uh, his defense of fascism is uh, directly theological? Yes, it has to do with the way he thinks about God. Yeah, as this and sort of weak guy who needs a state to manifest his will. Exactly, and I mean, and that's like, I mean, that's I'm not I'm not a fascist, but I mean, it's like it's pretty succinct, you know? It's, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's I mean, it's it's like easier to understand than like Marxism, and yeah. So, in that sense, I think that idea will probably propagate. And Russians are, you know, very smart, very cultured, sort of spiritual people. So it's <laughs> it's like it seems like an idea that will end up shaping the world. I guess that's why I brought it up. Yeah, um, the very the very question about 
ideology, like what ideology is um, in, in this back and forth between overt dogmatism and, uh, you know, someone who, as speaking to you, you know, you've, you've been through, I've, I've talked about this with my other friends who are scientists or worked in science. Um, there's sort of this modern mythology that since the Enlightenment, science has become um, untethered and free and sort of not under the dogmatism of the church. My impression, not to say that science was free, you know, under the dogmatism of the church or religion or whatever, but I have a, a sense as someone speaking outside of science. I've, I've read the philosophy of science, but I don't know very much about hard science myself. So I could be totally ignorant on this. But my impression is that there is a certain aspect in which the scientists actually had more freedom under overt dogmatism than they do under modern post-enlightenment ideology, especially well, like outside of capitalist restraints. And I've, I've talked to scientists who are in science and they, they say like if people knew, only knew how much results and data are butchered to get funding, no one yeah. would believe anything in science anymore. Of course. So um, I, I personally am like for the separation of state and science, just yeah. a Paul Fairbend um, uh, statement. But um, the thing that um, the, my, my, my very ad hoc um, theory about this is that if you, if you read about like the falling out of quote unquote science and the church, um, you know, Galileo, who, you know, proposed the heliocentric theory of the solar system, you know, his, his actual, his mathematics was actually much worse at predicting the location of heavenly bodies than the church's was. Mm -hmm. So he was arguing over, he was really arguing over a political problem because if you get into modern, like relativistic theory, there's no center of the solar system. In fact, you could technically say that Jupiter pulls the sun slightly off center. So the sun isn't even the center of the, mm -hmm. it's not even the gravitational center of the solar system. So he wasn't like really even right. And the, the, actually the, the, the church, if you look at their dialogue with Galileo, they were basically like, we don't give a fuck where you say the land is, but just like don't tell this to people because it's like disruptive to society. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually find that like an enviable relationship between empiricism and culture, which yes. is much more helpful than ours is, which is the sort of crazy, like tomorrow, if we discover that like black holes are conscious, we'll like swallow the earth and water. So, you know, I mean, like something crazy, something crazy, like, you know, like, it's like suicidal. Yeah. Like, or, or like science or worship. <laughs> exactly. Um, like it's, so, sorry, I don't. I, just, like, I feel like this is a very eccentric statement. I just no, no, it's, it's fascinating. But I'm, I'm interested, especially. I want to hone in on this thing you said. You're for the separation of science and the state, but my, I guess my retort is like, what does that mean? Like, it seems inescapable that science is always functioning consciously or unconsciously in the confines of some sort of dogma. And, I mean, the psychoanalyst in me is saying is always thinking like it's better if that dogma is overt and known and accepted than pretend it to not be real, which is why I have, yeah. even though I'm no fan of the Catholic Church, I have a lot more sympathy for something like the Catholic Church, despite all my criticisms of the Catholic Church, being the philosopher king in the platonic sense who comes in and says, you can publish this 
don't publish this versus the will and chaos I mean, of modern capitalism. No, I, I, so, so I guess I just agree. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess maybe I just like that phrase separation on uh, state and science. Cause it's, you know, it's, uh, it's contrary to the separation of church and state, which is uh-huh. so, you know, beloved supposedly. Um, but, but, if, but if it's not, it, if it's not separation or if it is separation of church and state, what is, what is it that is inevitable? I, I guess I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I again, I adopted that phrase from Paul Fairbend. Uh-huh. The, 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 I think his emphasis for that was that um, basically, like, we need to protect society from science. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, like, I, I feel like, like if there's if there's any ideology with science nowadays, it is that science is something that operates in this vacuum of freedom. It's always good, right? It's it's <laughs> it's just like considered it's always considered good, right? Like, yeah. like if we publish papers about how to like make airborne smallpox, that's like uh-huh. furthering the marketplace of ideas or something. It's just, oh. it's interesting that, um, Galileo's like first sort of public lecture was on proving that Dante's Inferno was geologically, uh, true. Have you, have you heard about this? No, but that's hilarious. <laughs> I always thought it was really funny. And he, he like, like people loved him for it. Like he became famous because of this lecture. And uh, then he was like, wait, <laughs> like he started like thinking about it with Paradiso and he's like, wait a second. <laughs> I don't think Richard Dawkins makes any sense. <laughs> I don't think YouTube is going to post, uh, post a, a video of, of Richard Dawkins talking about that in my feed. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, so speaking of Dawkins too, and there's things I admire about Dawkins. Like I really like his his idea. So like, even though I'm not really a Darwinist, there are certain interpretations of Darwinism I like. And I, I really like Dawkins' interpretation. I think a lot of what Dawkins says about his meta narratives for Darwinism can even make sense outside of a uh, long-term Darwinism, which is to say like 99.9% of what people think Darwinism is. Um but but in the grander scheme of of like when we talk about I think better than than uh, Dawkins and better example is actually Steven Pinker. You're you're familiar with him, yeah? Oh, um, he's a menace. Who is really the embodiment <laughs> of scientific ideology? Just sort of being the person who goes to bat for you know in Shizik's words, capitalism with a human face, and and that we're looking, yeah. You know, he's he's kind of whenever I th- whenever I think of Pinker, I'm always like I'm imagining Pinker reading. Um, Voltaire's Candide because it's like <laughs> he's like um, I'm basically Leibniz you know but I'm like dumber and and I'm working yeah, a lot and, dumb, a lot dumber <laughs> and I, I know how to I know how to I know how to write books with like lots of useless graphs yeah <laughs> <laughs> or you know and I don't even have like any particular flack against this individual I just think the ideology that he tends to promote incidentally is is quite um there's there's even like there's even like a a way you could describe certain types of people who live in the suburbs by his name which is malcolm gladwell um oh yeah (laughs) which is just like they're the type of like person he's like he's like the one who's like you suck because you weren't born in the right month (laughs) yeah yeah or just like like, i I think like a certain type of person who like doesn't really know anything about what science actually is or like sociology or psychology but like read malcolm gladwell in high school did well on the SAT, went to Yale, lives in the suburbs, you know, has like a rare breed poodle or something. 
and all voted for Obama and listens to NPR every morning. <laughs> yeah. And like, and that, that is, that is, collect, what, that is what religion uh, basically is now it, in the same way, like most people throughout most of history, you know, in the West were not like very pious Catholics. They were just like, okay, yeah, Jesus, whatever. It's kind of like the same thing with now with science in, in the sense that it just functions as a passive ideology, not really as an active ideology in these like, I fucking well, love science folks, you know? And this goes back to automation a little bit. Goes back to what? Like sort of like automation, AI, but... Oh, okay. Um, because like we computerize science so much and like a lot of, a lot of like mundane, like, like the, the people who aren't like brilliant or generating new ideas basically just like sit around and dick around with Excel spreadsheets all day. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, you know, they can, they can flatter themselves that they're like, you know, contributing to, you know, the same thing like, you know, uh, Ptolemy was doing or something. <laughs> like, and that's the other thing I think about too with, with like science education. Like I talk to my friends who are biologists or chemists. I'm like, oh, so you've read Darwin's Origin of Species, which I read as a philosophy student, or you've read, you know, Newton's Principia Mathematica or something. And they're like, and they, ha oh, they haven't read any like, of those. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> one of those. And I'm like, and these are people who are otherwise like in their intelligence I respect. And yeah. it's just that the, the school, like, won't even really talk about them or if they do talk about them it's this very dissected idea of who newton was it's just like this basically a modernist who was doing science it's like if you read newton's notes they're like filled with all these like esoterica yeah, he was like alchemy. a schizophrenic he yeah, was like a schizophrenic <laughs> it's like, like it's like john Forbes nash is the like, closest thing we come to that yeah, exactly <laughs> And it's like all these all these great scientists throughout history by modern standards just seem absolutely batshit insane. But well, even my 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 close friend Vladimir Vavotsky, um, who passed away unfortunately, he was he was like a mystic, but he, and he was absolutely revolutionary mathematic mathematician. And yeah. you know when when they published his obituary in the New York Times, like make no mention of any of this. What, what do you say? <laughs> he, he was a, he was what? Like a mystic, like oh, he had like okay. Yeah, like he he saw spirits and that they told him things about math. And the same thing is true. Yeah, yeah, it's like Socrates with his daemon following him around. Everyone's like, "Oh, Socrates, you know, he's such like a brilliant guy." And then Socrates would be like, "I mean, most of what I say, I just get from this spirit that follows me around." And when you read, especially modern philosophy or history of philosophy, like it's so passive about this aspect. Like yeah. even if you want to totally psychologize it, which they often do, yeah. they don't pay it's, any attention. And it's like, it's, to it's, me, this seems like the fundamental thing of whatever genius is. Like, and, and even the very word genius seems to etymologically imply that you're being possessed by something. Of course. And I mean, it's like, I was going to say, it's, it, I think it's actually, it's even more threatening to people than like the Alcibiades, which if you look at an old volume of Plato from like the early 20th century, they also exclude like we can't talk about his psychosis or his like love of young boys <laughs> like, uh, about everything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Alcibiades, right? Like, Oh, Al Alcibiades. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. He was, he was pissed off because Socrates went to sleep with him. <laughs> well, he slept with him literally, but not in, in the euphemistic sense. <laughs> um, although, although Socrates was fond of going to the bathhouses when the boys were there. In the in the evening hours, and is that actually is that actually an ancient literature? Sorry, is that actually recorded in ancient literature? Yeah, yeah. Well, he talks about in the dialogues and Theotetus. He's he specifically it said going to the baths uh, to see the boys, and <laughs> and, and, and Phaedrus 
it, it's almost like a modern joke in there, but like when he sees the, the Phaedrus is one of the most brilliant dialogues I think Plato wrote. I think it's the most beautiful work in philosophy. But the beginning, it's almost like there's this sexual euphemism, and which makes sense for the Phaedrus because his whole point is that Eros is the birth of genius and the birth of philosophy. But he's he's basically talking about the the art of the speech. And Phaedrus has a speech, and Phaedrus is a young boy, and Phaedrus has a speech in his cloak, but it's kind of sticking out. And the way translators translate this is always very awkward, but you could basically see it as like Socrates walking up to Phaedrus and saying, oh, Phaedrus, are you know, oh, is that a speech? Are you just happy to see me? Wow. That's <laughs> right on the nose. He doesn't literally say that, but like the, you know, a way to understand it in English would be something of, akin to that. And it's always really funny to see how translators deal with that, that specific line. Um, but you, you do, I mean, Plato, like, like Dante, you know, is, is riddled with these connections between Eros and, and deeper understandings of yeah. mystical reality. But both that aspect, I mean, the three things that you get ignored in Plato are his reliance on mythology, the sexual Eros, and the, um, the uh, what we were just speaking of with the, the sort of demon that's following Socrates around. It's, I mean, yeah. it's interesting because like, as far as early philosopher goes, it's actually the Christians and to some degree, the Muslims who really pay most attention to this. They, they had a much more vivid interest in this aspect of philosophy. Like, are philosophers possessed? Do they have spirits? Um, and then it sort have of you ever? disappears in the West at some point. There's a couple of decent biographies of Nietzsche now. Uh, one is a one is in German, but um, there's an Australian who wrote Julian Young. He wrote a decent one. Which is basically just trying to, yeah, it's weird, <laughs> but it, it's decent. It's a, it's a, it's a very um, I don't know. Has a lot of information. It was not talked about. Does he? Does he but, take a different view of? Oh, sorry. Go on. You're about to say something. No, I just I just went about the demon possession thing. I mean, Nietzsche spoke about being stalked essentially by like a demon his entire life and in and, and shining his letters as the messiah or jesus christ and yeah i mean I never i never swallowed the general reading of his um late life as being some sort of congenital or physical neurological purely neurological condition um to me it always did seem as a consequence of some sort of spiritual state or mystical state well, Again, even, there's a really even if you want to reduce these things to purely psychological, yeah. uh, even in that framework, most of these views on philosophy don't make any sense in the sense that they're looking at them as being more fundamentally neurological rather than psychological. Yeah. I mean, the, the, only, the only person who has a hot take on that is the, there's a book uh, by that painter's brother, Kolotsky, I think his name is. Um, uh, the painter's uh, brother? What, what are you speaking of? Uh, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, it's called. Oh, okay. he, he thinks that, that Nietzsche's writings uh, made him crazy. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it's, it, I just like it because it's you know, it, the, the syphilis thing was, was just yeah. a rumor that was spread by Wagner. Personally, I don't even think Nietzsche was crazy. I think he attained some sort of weird, like, spiritual archetype of, like, the fool. That's mm -hmm. just me. But I, I have the sense that Nietzsche was actually very cognizant in his so-called de deteriorated state. He just didn't let anyone on, you know, otherwise. Um, I mean, he could still, he could still put the piano and his handwriting was intact. And so. it's, there's first uh, person accounts that he, definitely not a, there's first person accounts that he would go in and out of 
you know, points of clarity, which to be fair and an actual like dementor or whatever you, you have as well. But I don't know if Nietzsche, when these first person accounts you read about them, they seem oddly reminiscent of his actual philosophical thinking. And I'm, I'm wondering to what degree that I, those moments of clarity were actually happening either all the time or very often. And then you just didn't feel there's any point of saying that in an asylum <laughs> on lost <Right>. years. <laughs> and especially because his, his sister had taken over his estate at that point and yeah. using, using him basically to propagandize Nazism. <laughs> probably not thrilled about that either. Um, well, we have about uh, three minutes left. Was there any closing statements you wanted to make Ryan? Oh, no, it's a really pleasant conversation. Um, uh, super refreshing. And you guys just should keep doing this. <laughs> you were you were stopped on the street of, uh, a few days ago by an evangelist. And I was re- uh, it was recorded on video by him. And I was rather surprised by <laughs> the level of um, intellectual honesty that this evangelist had. They're very atypical compared to most street evangelists I come across. Yeah, I, I should email him. He was he was interesting. I don't, wait, wait, I don't know was his this life in story. Chicago or in Texas? This is in Chicago. What, have Have you been stalked by other street evangelists? No, just crazy people. But like he was <laughs> he was the only lucid one. Yeah, the, this guy was. Uh, I had a lot of respect for him, and uh, yeah, maybe, I'll email him. Maybe he can go on the link podcast. That, that video to the podcast description. Oh, that'd be super cool. Yeah, thanks a lot, Corey. Chris. Uh, would Would super he be good. okay with that if we did that? Do you know? I think he'd be totally fine with that. He'd probably okay. be thrilled. Uh, because I did like that video. That was you're having a conversation with him for the audience to see. You're having a conversation with him about sort of agnosticism and agnosticism in a broader sense is just uh, epistemological state of being, and and sort of um, your background in physics and how that informs your idea about theology. But mm-hmm. it was a, it was an interesting. It's not your typical street evangelist narrative. What was it that Oppenhauer said when he was? I have become deaf, the destroyer of worlds. Indeed. Uh, I hope not. And um, sometimes we all have to become deaf to destroy <laughs> the last bit of death that exists in us, become the atomic Im- explosion that radiates our entire being into nothingness so that we may be filled with the luminosity of a thousand suns. All right, until next time. <laughs> See you, Ryan. See you guys. Cheers.